If there is a powerful and loving God, why does evil exist? That is a question that was asked by King Solomon 3,000 years ago. Back then, he was considered to be the most powerful man in the world. If this was a question that has been asked by some poor, helpless person, that would have been understandable. If that question has been raised by someone who is personally suffering injustice, that would have been understandable, right? I mean, if this question has been raised by someone who has given so much of himself and received nothing in return, that would have been an understandable question. But this question has been asked by the man who was considered to be the most powerful man of his day. Kings and queens were coming from all over the world just to observe the wealth and the wisdom and the power of King Solomon. And yet, he's asking all this important question, which tells me one thing, that even the most powerful man in the world is incapable of generating integrity in the hearts of others. Even the most powerful man in the world is incapable of changing the heart of other men. We often refer to the presidency of the United States, and the media always loves to refer to the office as the most powerful office in the world. It's the most powerful position in the world. It's the most powerful person in the world. They obviously have not read (laughs) the books that are written by those who are around presidents who tell us that this is pure fantasy as they watched and saw firsthand at times when these so-called most powerful men in the world stood helpless and unable to do what they think they're able to do. In fact, that's what the conclusion that the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 4 comes down to. King Solomon witnessed the tragedy of injustice. He becomes very disheartened. He becomes very discouraged. He becomes despaired of life. He says, death is better than life. But before I get to Ecclesiastes 4 and 5, which I want to cover today, I want to answer that question. I want to answer that question, why, if there's a powerful God, as a loving God, why evil exists? And I'm going to answer it to the satisfaction of no one. Okay? I'm telling you ahead of time. So, if you raised your expectations, I'm relaxing them now. (laughs) Because Christian philosophers have been trying to answer this question about the existence of evil and suffering in the world for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to the satisfaction of no one. (laughs) I, in fact, I can tell you, I personally have never met anyone who became converted to Christ, somebody who came to believe in Jesus, somebody who became eternally saved as a result of a a debate or an argument or receiving satisfactory answer to that age-old question about the existence of evil in the world. Why is that? That's a personal opinion because all of the explanations in the world. It's not going to convince anyone. The secret is not in the explanations and in the debate and in the arguments, because debates and arguments are not going to change hearts. I want you to hear me right. This is very important. 
If you would say to them, and these are the arguments we all used, if you would say to an unbeliever that God allows evil to exist so that they may have a free will to choose between good and evil, God and Satan, they will not buy it. They will scoff at it. If you say to them that God paid with His own precious blood in order that He may give those who come to Him power to overcome evil with good, they will scoff at that. If you say to them, only when you accept God's generous gift, God's remedy for evil, can you see His loving hand, His merciful hand working in the lives of His children, they will scoff at that. If you say to them that evil exists so that there may be a contrast between evil and the goodness and the mercy and the graciousness of God, they will scoff at that. So you say, what's the answer? The answer is not necessarily in the explanations themselves. The answer is not in the debating and arguing point-counterpoint. The answer is not winning an argument because you can win the argument and lose the person. The answer is in lovingly inviting them to surrender and experience the goodness of God for themselves. The answer is to invite them to receive the gracious gift of God of eternal life. And when their hearts change, everything else will follow. I want to show you this from Scripture. Lazarus was a man of very few means of this worldly goods. But he lived for God. The rich man right next door had everything that we think a person could have. He lived for self. And so when they both died, Lazarus goes to what the Bible calls the bosom of Abraham, which is a euphemism for heaven. And the rich man ends up in that place of torment 24-7, which we call Hades, the Bible calls Hades or hell. And there the rich man is only being in hell for a few minutes, and he turns out to be a great evangelist immediately. He will cry out to Abraham, Abraham, Father Abraham, please, I don't want my family to come to this place. And I know that if you allow Lazarus to rise from the dead, they will believe, and they will turn to God, and they will not come where I am. Oh, do you remember Abraham's answer? Abraham's answer was very simple. If they are not going to believe the Word of God, even if Lazarus rises from the dead, they're not going to believe it. Now, please don't misunderstand me, okay? We are under obligation to give an explanation for our faith. We are under obligation to lovingly patiently explain the Word of God. We are under obligation to thoughtfully testify to the power of God working in our lives. We are under obligation to live our lives in such a way as to make Jesus shine through us so that they can hunger for Him. We are under obligation to lovingly urge, plead, and invite people to come and experience for themselves. Come and taste and see how good God is. But explanations and arguments and debates in themselves are not the secret that brings people to Christ. 
Where is the secret? The secret is in lovingly, patiently, perseveringly explaining His plan of salvation. Look, everyone everywhere is looking for some secret formula. Everybody is looking for some little plan, some sort of clever method that is going to um, make people believe in Christ. But Abraham told this rich man, he said to him, God's Word has the power to change lives, and if that cannot do it, nothing will do it. It's a rough translation, but you know what I mean. That's ultimately the conclusion that King Solomon came to. That is his ultimate conclusion that Solomon has reached after he lived under the sun and saw things and experienced things as we've been seeing in the series of messages entitled, What is Like Down Under? And so in chapter 4 of the book of Ecclesiastes, he reaches the answer by visiting various places. First of all, he goes to the courts, the halls of justice, and then he looks into the marketplace in the business world. Then he goes to the highway of life. And finally, he goes and looks inside his own palace where the power resides. So, first, when he goes to the halls of justice, and all he can see is miscarriage of justice. (laughs) And he becomes so discouraged. He sees corruption, the place where the lady justice has her eyes blinded and holding scales in her hand. There are loopholes. There are briberies. There are payoffs. And there are people who are being convicted, and yet they were innocent, and some who are guilty of being getting off scot-free. And when Solomon saw the victims of injustice crying and weeping and nobody to comfort them, he becomes so despairing of life. Aren't you glad that the Holy Spirit's name is a comforter? No matter what causes you tears in life, no matter what causes you pain in life, even when you are alone and nobody can understand what you're going through, there He is, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the comforter. He is comforting you. He is strengthening you. He is urging you on. He's taking you over to the other side. Somebody say, Michael, but this man was a king. This man had power. This man was a leader. Here's the truth. See, most of us look at leaders and say, wow, (laughs) they've got it all. They've got it all. Company employees, they look at the president of the company and say, ah, he's got it all. In the nation, we look at our president and we say, oh, man, you know, he's got all that power. He's the most powerful man in the world. After all, the media said it. (laughs) Sometimes workers think that the company president has got all the power of the world. Sometimes employees think that their boss, their CEO, have no problems whatsoever. (laughs) They got all the problems. He doesn't. Sometimes the employees think that the president or the CEO has no challenges in his life. (laughs) I mean, what they don't understand is that these leaders are often subjected to some challenges and some pressures that they will never understand. They are subjected to unfair criticism. They are subjected to betrayal and disloyalty by others. They are subjected to lying and intrigue by others. They are subjected to vicious rumors and attitudes. They are subjected to all kinds of challenges in life that the average person does not understand. 
the average employee doesn't understand that the boss can never leave the problems in his office when he goes home, that he carries all the problems with him everywhere he goes, that he carries his and his responsibility everywhere he goes, that he feels the burden of providing for the workers, that he feels the burden of pleasing the board, that he feels the burden of pleasing the shareholders, that he feels the burden of creating success for the company, that he feels the burden of meeting market expectations, that they feel the burden of rules and regulations over which they have no control, that they often have the burden of being harassed by some bureaucrat somewhere, that they often have the burden of being accused of unfairness and bias by disgruntled employees. They often have the burden of standing there helpless and powerless in front of some problems. Let me ask you this. When is the last time you wrote a letter to your boss and say, thank God for you and thank you for what you do? You see, the list goes on and on. Those challenges are so unique to leaders, leaders of all sorts. Good and godly leaders have unique challenges They carry huge burdens. The average person does not understand those burdens. And no one can understand a leader's problem except a leader. And here King Solomon, most powerful man in the world, he's a leader. He tells us that he is suffering, as all leaders do, quietly. (laughs) That he's even despairing of his monumental task like many leaders do, the task that they carry, that they often suffer in silence. In fact, I am so thankful because Solomon was honest enough to open his heart and let us see that. Most leaders of companies and businesses and elsewhere, they carry these burdens, and they don't never open up and tell others about it. Solomon did. I thank God for that. Secondly, this powerful man, strong man, king of Israel, goes to the marketplace. Well, disgusted with what he saw in the halls of justice, he says, I'm wondering if in the business world things are better. So he thought he might get a reprieve if he goes to the business world and see how the business world is working. And there he found two kinds of people. There he finds one who's working very, very hard. (laughs) I mean, they're working day and night. For what purpose? Oh, not so that they can beat the competition or just be successful. No. He said they are working so hard so they're able to get some of more goodies of this world. (laughs) They get more possessions of this world. Then the second person he sees is the lazy one, and the lazy one did not work at all. He just sat there, watched everybody else work. But he found the hardworking people, he said, they are working so hard, not in order that they may take pride in their work, so they, they can be just good stewards of their time. Now, no, he said, they, they're working hard so that they can accumulate and have the goodies of this world so that people can envy them. <laughs> and people walk around and said, wow, look at them. They got everything. The biggest house, the biggest cars, the best of this and the best of everything. I want you to hear me right, please. There is nothing wrong with having things. In fact, there is nothing wrong with competition. But if success is placed ahead of honesty, then we're in trouble. 
Listen to what the journalist had written about life in Washington, D.C. He said, ambition is the raving, insatiable beast (laughs) that most often demands to be fed in this town. End of quote. Well, as for the lazy, Solomon said, he said, well, they're not only eating away at the resources, they are eating away at their self-respect. They are eating away at their own self-worth. So what's the answer? Verse 6, he said, the answer is balance. (laughs) That's the secret word here. That's the operative word here. The secret is balance, having balance in life. It's an important word to remember, balance. Thirdly, Solomon goes to the highway of life. (laughs) And you know what he sees? He sees loneliness, isolation. And there, too, he becomes discouraged. And then he concludes that godly partnership, that godly friendship, that godly companionship is very important in life. He said two are better than one, and three strands cannot be easily broken. In fact, the Bible from cover to cover tells us that we are to encourage one another, that we are to motivate one another, that we are to pray for one another, that we are to uphold one another, that we are to support one another, that we are to protect one another, that we are to carry one another's burden. Two are better than one. Fourthly, he started looking at his own house. There's the west wing of the White House. (laughs) He looks at the place of power at the seat of power, verses 13 to 16. And there Solomon discover that one of the greatest dangers of leadership is isolation. Is isolation. That's his conclusion. He said, those who serve the king and come in, often they want to flatter him with flattering words and, and want to tell him what they think he wants to hear instead of telling him the truth. And those people don't help anybody. And I know you and I testify to that, that the only ones who are really helpful to us are those thoughtful brothers and sisters, uh, those who sincere and secure brothers and sisters who can tell us the truth, not what they think we want to hear. They help us much better and much more, and the king is exalting them to do that. When Solomon finished looking around and get so thoroughly depressed <laughs> in the halls of justice and in the business world and the highway of life and in his own palace. And, and then when he finally gets so discouraged and he looks up. Isn't that great? Finally he looks up. Stop living under the sun and live where? Above the sun. And he said, God is in control of life. God is in control of the various experiences. God makes all things beautiful in his time. Beloved, you know this. Life is complex. It's difficult. And and often life is not easily explainable. That's a fact. But when you look around you, when you look around you, it is not very difficult for you and me to find someone who needs encouragement, find someone who needs to be prepared, to be discipled, to be encouraged, to be trained, particularly the next generation. And that's really the burden of his heart. He comes toward the end of chapter 4 and goes into chapter 5, and he says, who is going to train the next generation? Who's going to disciple the next generation? Who's going to prepare the next generation? And he gives instruction to those who are coming behind Beloved, these are very, very important lessons. 
but because of the shortness of time, I could not go through chapter 5 verse by verse. So let me summarize it for you. I'm going to give you the whole chapter in a summary form. All right, you ready? Fasten your seatbelts. He said, be ready to hear and obey the Word of God. He said, you must remember that sacrifice is not a substitute for obedience. He says, remember to take your prayer life very seriously because God sees the very secrets of our hearts. He said, remember, when you make a vow to the Lord, you must keep it because God takes you at your word because He's expecting you to take Him at His word. He says, don't rob the Lord of worship that is due to His name. If you do that, you're going to rob yourself of all the blessings that comes as a result of worshiping the Lord in truth and in the Spirit. Be honest with God, he said. Come clean with God. Don't play games with God. Don't be embittered when you see injustice and corruption. Try to do something about it. And if you can't do something about it, still don't fret because God will do something about it. Don't let money to be your master. Don't let the love of money control you. Don't derive your satisfaction from the accumulation of wealth. Well, that's chapter 5. I want to tell you this as I conclude. John D. Rockefeller almost, almost ruined his own life. Now remember, this was America's only billionaire back then. He had an income of $1 million a week. That's a lot of money back then. That's a lot of money now. But I mean, when you think about it, ah, but he was a very sick man. He was very sick. At the age of 53, they thought he was dying. In fact, he was living on crackers and milk. He could not sleep out of worry. Hardly could sleep at any time of the night at all. Then somebody challenged him, and he began to give his money away to the kingdom and to God's work. He began to give one million at a time as a gift. And would you know that the moment he began to do that, his health completely changed overnight, literally. And he lived to celebrate his 98th birthday. Let me tell you, there is nothing wrong with money. Solomon is not saying that. There is nothing wrong with money. What you do with it will determine your joy in life or lack of it. That's really what he's saying. And I always tell you what the Word of God said. If I have an opinion, I tell you it's an opinion. But this is what the Word of God said. He said, what you do with it will determine whether you have joy in life or you don't. And that is why Solomon's final conclusion in chapter 5 of book of Ecclesiastes, he says, enjoyment in life does not come from possessions. Enjoyment of life does not come from wealth. The enjoyment of life does not come from riches. Enjoyment in life comes from knowing the living God. It comes from receiving everything from His hand with thanksgiving, whether it's pain or pleasure. And as you saw in the last message, these are all the different colors that God is using to paint that beautiful tapestry that's called your life, and it's called my life. But you know, I'm aware of the fact there could be somebody here today who have never really experienced the power of God, never 
come to Jesus Christ and surrendered and received His gift of eternal life. And somebody here is still living under the sun and feels so discouraged and said, I'm chasing after the wind and it's all meaningless just like Solomon saw. Well, today, you can say, Lord Jesus Christ, I repent. I turn to you. I confess. Come into my life. Bring me that joy that only you can bring. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.